Essentially, we, we operate with uh, two beliefs that drive our mission. The first is that we don't believe that the web or the internet in general is optimized for audio. Of course, there's destinations that do audio well, or you, you go and listen to a catalog of something. But if you look at the way people browse the web, the patterns are all really focused on either text or imagery or video. Hey guys, welcome to Product Explain, a show where we talk about products and the company's history and strategy behind them. This season, we're inviting folks from in the field onto the show to dive deeper into the products they love and the history behind them. I'm your first host, Jeff Lee. And I'm your co-host, Mike Alcazarin. Today, we're joined by Maximilian Piras, a product designer with Headliner Video. Headliner is a video creation tool designed for audio creators, making audio easily shareable across the web by automatically transforming audio clips just like this into engaging videos. At Headliner, Max leads cross-platform UI and UX. Prior to Headline, Max worked in various product design roles at companies like Simple Habit, 8Tracks, and Visual Max. Max, welcome to Product Explained. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff and Mike. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. I know I was telling you before the show, but I'm so jazzed to be talking to someone from Headliner because <laughs> we use Headliner for every single video. I think this is episode 100. And 13, 114. I'm not sure when we'll release this one. And we've used Headliner to publish all of our socials. So it's really cool to to get a you know sneak peek behind the uh, behind the curtain for for lack of a better word. But you know, Max, I was looking at your your background and it's a really cool, you know, journey, you know, just on how you landed in product design as a career and you have a lot of interesting steps and stops along the way. I saw also that one of these stops included you built a niche streetwear brand that ended up getting sold at the New Museum in New York. Uh, tell us about the Lost Cat story. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a fun one to start on. Very strange project, a very different time in my life, but it was a lot of fun, learned a lot. It started as a, a personal project that eventually evolved into my first stab at entrepreneurship. It was just an art project at first that I would do on weekends to escape my day job of designing apps. And it was just kind of like a fun thing to get to get out of the mode of being on a computer and, and think about things in a different light. It was actually a, a street art project at first. I was at the time when street art was having its moment and Shepard Fairey was blowing up. All those types of artists were, were just really in vogue. And I was just really excited about the concept of getting art onto the streets in, in front of people in a super grassroots way without having to deal with a bunch of bureaucracy and all that. And so I just wanted to get involved and, and make my own project. And uh, I actually had studied graphic design in school and had been an illustrator my whole life. So I got to put those skills to use as a kind of nice way to get out of the app world and started creating some posters that were hung up around the city. Uh, no comment on how they got hung up, but they were, they were up <laughs> on the wall. And uh, they, they were depicting this cartoon cat. And up top, it had the headline that said Lost Cat. And the, upon further inspection, you'd find out that the cat was, was not actually physically lost, but it was spiritually searching for itself. And so it was like, it was mentally lost. And that was just kind of, at the time I was super into philosophy and just thought it was kind of a fun way to, to inject some, some kind of deeper thinking into people's way, into people's day by having them stumble across this poster that would have, it had sayings on it. Like uh, the, fir the first one was said, if found and consider that we're all lost in some sense, and I just thought it was a fun way to kind of get people out of their, their daily routine and, and get them to think about things in a different light. And so they were hung up around the city and, and 
I would just kind of watch to see if anybody interacted with them and, and people would stop and think about them. And so they would take photos, et cetera. And I just thought it was actually even funnier to kind of have the view of people interacting with the art. So I ended up documenting, uh, like voyeuristically documenting people stopping in front of the posters. And then those became a photo series that I started posting online and uh, it just got a really good response. So I just kind of kept rolling with it and tried to see where I could take it. And eventually it ended up finding its way into shirts and I started selling them around the city. I, I brought them first to a skate shop in New York called Labor. And that was kind of my MVP. So I was like, well, if people like the posters, maybe they'll like the shirts. Yeah. And the owner of Labor was, was excited about it. So he let me, he put them in there on consignment and they just kind of, they, they sold out and I just kind of kept building off that momentum and Eventually, uh, yeah, got him into the new museum, which was a really big milestone. And at this point, turned into an actual company that I was running with two friends of mine, who are George Lois and Jeremy Nakamura. And we just we were just running out of my apartment. But um, eventually, I came to the conclusion that although we kind of been finding product market fit, I did just start to feel like um, you know, uh, since I'm working in tech and kind of leveling up my product knowledge there, I started to realize how how much slower clothing is in terms of innovation than something like software. And so that fun, the, the project Lost Cat that was supposed to be fun was now becoming actually more stressful than my normal job. Totally. You know, I was dealing with logistics, yeah, yeah. manufacturing. So I ended up deciding to wrap it up and, and just focus back on software, which, you know, it ended up being a lot more fun because you can just ship tons of experiments, recontextualize everything. Just bits are a lot more easy to work with than Adam. So I said, all right, like, I don't think the the global maximum for this this project is, is actually not like uh, in line with what I want to do long term. So bittersweet conclusion. It was a lot of fun, but decided to wrap it up eventually and, and learned a lot. But uh, that project is no longer ongoing. So um, yeah, well, I want to um, I want to dive into a follow up question. So Mike and I are kind of like in, in a lot of the same veins, like sim like serial side gig people. Like we, we like to like yeah. explore other things outside of work, which it sounds like some is something that you did. Um, and I, I like that you talked a little bit about how it went from kind of this like fun, creative outlet to maybe becoming bigger than you wanted it to be. And you realized you needed to kind of step away. Talk of, I'd love to hear about your thoughts on like, how do you find that balance? Like, are there other things that you've worked on where you started to like put in some more of your creative energy and it got you somewhere else? Or do you find that these are just intended to be kind of side things that they'll run its course and then you'll move on to the next thing. I'm, I'm a huge promoter of side projects. Like I, I've always got a side project going and just cause I'm kind of a workaholic. So it's at some level, I'm also trying to chill out a little bit. And <laughs> totally. <more relaxation>. Productive <laughs> chilling. <laughs> I love it. Productive chilling, but, but it's, it's just kind of addictive to, to get something going and see it. Hopefully it starts taking off. But I think um, it, it's a great outlet to just explore different things that you're not able to do during the week. But having uh, some time to reflect and say, you know, is this actually what I want to do? I think keeping those goals in mind is super useful. And, and in this case, I just said, well, you know, I really have no interest in, in working in fashion or, you know, creating a clothing brand, although it sounded cool at first when you see behind the, the scenes of what it's actually entails. I think it was kind of like a sobering moment to say, okay, I think I've, I've learned enough at this point and it's time to use this time to, it's like kind of opportunity cost. So I said, okay, mm -hmm. the, I could keep running like kind of a little, niche streetwear brand or, or whatever is shaping up to be, or I could use that time elsewhere. And, and so I ended up just jumping into animation after that, and which was another kind of side project that took its course. And, and I also said, okay, well, I've learned animation. This is a lot of fun. I started actually getting some freelance jobs that I would do on the weekends. And I realized as well, like yeah, animation is not what I want to do full-time. It's so much work. <laughs> 
for like yeah. kind of a, a much less ROI than you get in software. And so again, I went back to saying, okay, time to close the lid on this one and, and spend that time elsewhere. But hundred percent, I think side projects are, are like, are a really good resource that people should totally take advantage of and hundred percent promote them. Yeah. Sometimes like I found the same thing where I put too many irons in the fire and then I realized that like none of them are really, somebody gave me the analogy once of like kicking a hundred soccer balls, <laughs> like you're trying yeah. to progress all of them forward slightly. And ultimately you're like, I need to, I need to do less in order to like progress them a little bit further. And then I figure out which ones are providing me the most joy or sometimes it's monetary value or whatever you're optimizing for. So it's interesting to kind of hear other, other folks take on what happens when you're exploring a bunch of things. Cause it, I think it's really hard. Everyone wants to, you know, if you're kind of like a serial entrepreneur, you're trying to like do everything and be the best at everything. But in reality, you have to kind of pick like the one or two lanes that you want to be really, really good at sometimes. And those might shift over time. It might not be forever that you're doing this one thing and, and kind of kicking ass at it. Um, and I guess like following up on your long line of like side projects, I, I heard that you spent time as a, a movie poster designer. So could you tell us a little bit about that? I think that's also, it sounds like kind of similar to the Lost Cat poster idea, which kind of evolved into this art piece uh, and art experience. But how, tell us about movie movie poster design specifically. Yeah, absolutely. In the same vein of, you know, during my 20s, just exploring a lot of different avenues. And when I was growing up, I was in love with movies. I still am, but I wanted to be a director when I was a kid. And I had my little camera that I was filming little skits with my friends. And I eventually skewed into visual art and design and just kind of fell in love with that route. But then uh, maybe my getting towards my, my mid-20s, I had started working in tech and, and was working at an agency, which all they did was, was banner ads and microsites. And that was kind of my first view at what it meant to be professional in tech. I, you know, I've been building websites my whole life, so... I knew that I, I loved building for the web, but just to actually work in that context, I kind of had a, a not super fun intro to it. And so I was starting to search for maybe other ways to spend my day. And I had this opportunity to start working at a, an agency that designed movie posters. And since I came from a, like a love of movies and like, you know, a lot of artists like Saul Bass, who I really loved all the posters they designed, I thought this would be an amazing intersection of my interests. So I, I tried it out. And I quickly found out that it was actually even less creative than doing banner ads. And it was like the most <laughs> formulaic, just churn out the same thing factory. All my time was pretty much like airbrushing movie stars' faces to get their wrinkles out. And uh, I just kind of realized what the, the whole industry model over there sets it up in a way that there's actually not that much room for creativity because the studio will, hmm. will send out an RFP, a request for proposal to all these agencies, and they're all kind of fighting for the bid. And they have very short timelines. So they're just really, mm -hmm. they're, they're really uh, incentivized to do what they know works. And they don't have time to like add in psychographics or market analysis and, and such. So they just kind of churn out something that feels very familiar to everything else. And, and their, their goal is to not raise eyebrows. It has to look similar enough, but be a little different. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that, that ended up uh, being the complete opposite of what I thought it would be. And I started to realize all the posters that I really liked, like Mondo or you know, the ones that are more creative, like the Saul Bass ones, those are probably for smaller releases. You know, they're probably for indie movies that, that have a very small distribution. And, and so to be successful in an industry as well, you're kind of working in that agency world. And I just kind of came to the conclusion that the web was actually a lot more fun to work on than this. And I hadn't found startups yet, but I was lucky enough to get an, lucky enough to get an offer at 8Tracks right after that, which was the first startup I worked at. 
and just totally fell in love with it and was really excited to get back into kind of the freedom of, of software again. So it was a very similar process of kind of figuring out exactly, diving in to figure out what the nuts and bolts were and realizing it, it wasn't actually for me. So here I am back in tech. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a good transition too to, you know, to hear more about what you're doing today at, at Headliner. And like I said, I'm super jazzed to, to take a peek under the hood because we've been using Headliner for the past two years. But before we dive into that though, tell our audience, you know, what is Headliner? Yeah, for sure. That's super, it's really cool to hear the guys are users of it. And this might turn into like a semi-usability <laughs> user interview. So sorry if I start digging into to how, you know, how we can improve, et cetera, but I'm oh, always totally. really excited to meet users of the product. Um, so yeah, Headliner is a, it's a suite of tools that we created to, to help podcasters extend the reach of their shows. The mission is to increase the audience of, of any audio by increasing its discoverability across the web. So this is things like making it more searchable in search engines, helping create trailers for it. Essentially, we, we operate with uh, two beliefs that drive our mission. The first is that we don't believe that the web or the internet in general is optimized for audio. Of course, there's destinations that do audio well, or you, you go and listen to a catalog of something. But if you look at the way people browse the web, the patterns are all really focused on either text or imagery or video. And so audio actually doesn't naturally fit into a lot of those, pat into a lot of those patterns. So the work we do at Headliner is, is really focused on figuring out how to optimize audio to be better discoverable mm -hmm. in all those modes, like searching or, or browsing on social. And uh, the second belief is that it's kind of a byproduct of that first one is that we don't think that the majority of listeners out there even have a podcast app installed yet. So this is for, this is um, led us to start thinking about how do we find audiences for podcasters in places that aren't currently in vogue? Like what's the next set of listener, where are the ne next set of listeners going to be? Because we don't think they're in a podcast app. If you look at the stats, podcast consumption is still, although it's growing, it's still so far behind video and other types of mm -hmm. media. So uh, yeah, these, these beliefs are what drive our product development. And we're just trying to create tools that help podcasters get their audio out there. Yeah, that's super interesting. I wanted to kind of comment on the web is not built for audio. My wife is a, um, she, every movie that we watch at home has to have closed captions on. And then, you know, I used to kind of poke fun at her for it. Like, oh, like, you know, why do you need this? But then we watch Game of Thrones with closed captions on and all you, you have all these like very unique names. Uh, I'm sure bring, uh, um, Lord of the Rings is the same way. And you're like, oh, actually, this is really helpful because it starts to kind of like reinforce the I'm hearing it and seeing it. And now I know all the names and what's going on and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and I really love that you kind of commented on how people explore the web. Like, I, I think I stumbled on like listening and watching videos at like two or three X speed now. And it feels like a short, like a, like a superpower when you're like powering through a YouTube video that's normally 30 minutes or whatever. I'm sure people listen to our podcast in 2x speed, but that's, hopefully that's okay. <laughs> I wanted to ask overall, like, it sounds like you've kind of explored a couple different design avenues and kind of landed on tech. And so that's kind of that this like mini optimization. And now you're at Headliner. What makes product at, or at least design or, you know, both at Headliner unique in your perspective? Like what makes it a super interesting place to work? Like how is it different than working at maybe some of your previous stops or other places in tech that you've heard about, like, tell us a bit more about that. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's an early stage startup still. It's been around for about five or six years, I believe I joined four years ago, but it's still super small, super scrappy. And I think that's the type of company that really attracts me. I, I love as you know, from my background, I've, I'm kind of was all over the place. I love to just try different things. And so I love to be involved in all the different, uh, all the different avenues as opposed to being siloed or, or super, you know, 
specialize in one avenue. So, so early stage startups always really attracted me to um, just to that, the lifestyle and uh, kind of the mode of communication they have and kind of the, the freedom that you have to try new things as long as you have a good reason for it. And obviously I've always been interested in kind of building things from kind of the ground up. So I think, so Headliner and Atrax as well have been the two companies that, that best embodied this. And ever since I started on that path, I've just been constantly seeking them out. And I think design at Headliner, it's right now it's just me. So I'm the only designer, team of one, individual contributor. So uh, I don't know if that keeps it interesting because I, I don't know how interesting I think I am, but uh, at the very least, it lets <laughs> me try a bunch of things. And, and there's some things that I, I do probably not great. And there's some things that I think I, I do differently that could result in interesting ways, interesting things, because there's not any bureaucracy to really stop us from trying it. So right now we're just, we're super biased to action and we just try to ship things and, and see what happens and obviously try to ship the right things, but specifically try to ship things that can then give us feedback from our users and from our metrics and in terms of telling us if we're going in the right direction. So, you know, we're still super early stage. There's uh, we still have under 20 people on, on the team. And I think it's just, that's a, that's a really fun environment. And so I've always gravitated towards them. So really interesting that it's, it's been around for about six years and you've been there for the majority of the life of Headliner. I'm curious, how has the company evolved over the past four years? And then a second question to that, that I'll append is, do you know the, the history of how Headliner got started? Sure. I guess I'll start with the second one first. Um, Headliner actually ironically started as, as a very similar app to Clubhouse or Twitter Spaces now, if you're familiar with that. And uh, it just was a classic case of, you know, too early. And it didn't get really much traction as that product. Although there was this audiogram feature where you could take the audio you'd recorded or, you know, the, the audio that you had in that discussion. And then if you want to record it, you could then create an audiogram, which is a little video trailer for a piece of audio. Usually it adds a waveform or some other visuals. And then you can use that to promote your audio. And that of all the users that were there, that was the only one that anybody seemed interested in. And so they started on this route that they thought, oh, well, maybe it, it was essentially it was essentially video editing at that point, although it was a very simplified version of it. And so the initial idea for Headliner was maybe this is a really simple video editor that's in the browser and it's priced in a way that creators who aren't professional video editors can justify buying it. And it had it didn't have a specific audio focus at the time, but it had started as an audio product, so it had those features. And so they launched Headliner, which was the, the name of this new product. The previous one was called Sparemin. And Headliner was all about video editing in the browser. And it did still had those waveforms for audio creators, but it was more of a general purpose video editor. Mm. And this is about the time I joined. And I remember thinking this, it, it seemed much crazier then than it did now because you know the, to have a video editor in a browser just felt like you're going to crash the browser which you, most of the time it, that's what happened, you know, like there was a lot of crashes, but some, for some videos it worked out and uh, there was all different types of, of ways to create a video. You create videos from articles. So is some, some transcription based creation off of the text of something, or you, we had there, an AI tool that helped you find content across the web for a video based on the transcript or, or other factors like that. So it was really not focused at the time. It was just really exploring social video, you know, people who, Mm -hmm. just need to get something onto Instagram or Twitter. How can they create a video of some content that is not specifically made for that? Like for instance, audio at the time, you I still, you really can't upload an audio file to Twitter or obviously Instagram. So this kind of helped extend the reach of for any of those social videos. 
but we they kind of had this twitch moment and i joined right at the time when this was uh where this is really taking everybody's attention where uh, just just as twitch had realized that their tool was being uh, video streaming which was at first at first general purpose it was primarily being used by by video game streamers you know it was a small segment mm-hmm. but they were super leaned in and so twitch decided to just go all, all in in that co- on that cohort and the same thing happened to us with podcasters like podcasters were the ones who were using us the most those types of features were getting the most action. And so eventually we just decided, well, we should just go all in and give the people what they want. Let's stop focusing on features that aren't focused on podcasts and let's just figure out how to add even more value to that type of cohort. And that kind of started this long string of insights that have really changed the product completely from that day. Uh, the first one was that, you know, audio creators really aren't visual thinkers. So we had been operating with this, this NLE, nonlinear editor paradigm for the UI, which it looked very much like a simplified Adobe Premiere or Final Cut. And if you put an audio creator into that type of product, first of all, everybody's confused that type of product. It's <laughs> so powerful, which is a testament yeah. to the features. But like, you know, it's I, I use it all the time. I actually did video editing back in the day as well. And I forget where all the features are. It's a super, it's super powerful. That makes it super complicated. So we realized that audio creators likely don't think like visual thinkers. So they kind of have a different mm. mental model. So we started moving away from those paradigms like the NLE and started trying to figure out how we could let people create video in a format like a user experience, user interface that felt more native to audio creators. Or as I say, it just felt like it got the job done sim- quicker and we kind of automated a lot of decisions that were superfluous to audio creators because they're really not create. they don't, they don't want to create video. They just don't have a better option of getting their audio out there. So that really shifted the paradigm. So we kind of realized our product was, was a pain point in itself. You know, they need, they need the X, they need the end product or they need the output, but the process of getting it is just a total chore to them. So that led us into thinking, okay, well, probably the ideal time to be using headliner is closer to zero minutes. So how do we start figuring out how to take that work off their plate completely while still giving them the same output? And we even actually tried a marketplace at one time where we would match hmm. podcasters to video editors and we'd take a fee from that transaction. And the unit economics just totally didn't work. So we scrapped yeah. that. And then we stumbled onto automation, which is to say that we figured out probably the, the visuals don't matter in most cases. The audio is the star of this video. The, the visuals really have to, they have to look good, but they don't have to be anything amazing. And so we, we figured out that in a lot of cases, we could probably automate the entire process by hooking up a video template to an RSS feed. And so the RSS feed being the trigger for when new audio is available, we can then send it right into any pre-chosen video template and automatically create videos for podcasters, which is to say to remove the entire experience mm-hmm. that they don't like and just give them the part they do like, which is the final output. And so that that was probably brings us up to date to today. That's kind of where the product's at. But now we're trying to even disrupt that further by with this third insight, which is that, you know, this, this same process of discovering audio on, a social, on social media, in a way, uh, it's, it's okay. It's, I think it's actually probably more of a hack than anything because, you know, it just doesn't have a, if there was another alternative, I'm sure people would do it. If you could upload a fo- an audio file onto Instagram, I'm sure that would be preferred than to going to another app, creating a video, bringing it back. Mm-hmm. And so uh, looking through that lens, we started to think, well, you know, if this is really, this probably isn't the actual job to be done. It's just the current best alternative. So if we think about the the behavior of discovering 
audio through social media? Like what are some other parallel use cases to that? And we ended up landing on this idea of creating a widget that people could embed onto their websites and then preview out audio in there as well using the same process. So it kind of becomes like the audiograms you use in social feeds, but now they're in, they're in a web page, And it's actually mm-hmm. much better for a few reasons. Specifically, the, the feedback loop isn't broken. You, there's really no attribution for social media videos for in terms of connecting them to podcast listens because, you know, there's no link to go directly to the episode. You can't like attach a UTM to say that audiogram drove this listen. And that's mm-hmm. definitely a problem for some people. They just can't measure the ROI. So in extending this out to the rest of the web, we actually get a really nice attribution cycle and we get to use things like topic recognition. So we can apply our own AI to say, well, what's happening on this web page? Let's serve up some really relevant podcast episodes. And so this has been a really interesting next evolution for Headliner where we're saying, okay, beyond social media, how do we get podcasts to the rest of the web? And that's where we are today. That's a product called Disco. And it's super exciting to see it. It's starting to take off. And I'm sure this will be the direction we're heading in for the next year. That's exciting. Yeah. You talked a lot about initially from audiograms and how that kind of blew up. And now we see them kind of everywhere, right? And especially like sometimes I'm scrolling videos and I don't want to, maybe I'm like in a public place and I just want to read through what they're saying and, or they have bad audio and I can't hear it and I have to kind of read it as well. It's a the use case all the way up to um, kind of this like AI um, solution that you're talking about where you're bringing up, serving up more relevant information, more relevant podcasts through Disco. Could you walk us through like other interesting or maybe even some of your favorite short form like content trends right now like i'm sure you guys are looking at across the board what people are doing in that space like anything else that kind of jumps out at you for example like right now on instagram i'm hearing a lot of people using like those audio templates right like one that comes to mind for some reason is um and that wraps up the 2022 season audio clip that people keep like they use it as, as part of their reels um so i'm curious like what are some things that feel really novel and unique um as in terms of like how people are creating some of their short form content. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to pick a favorite because I'm always just in like, you know, landscape analysis mode. It's always kind of a mix of there's this this group of people who effectively think audiograms are no longer working. And again, going back to the ROI discussion, like it's, it, there's really no quant- quantifiable metric to that. So I, I get to, I understand why people come to that conclusion. And then there's people who are still doing it and saying, well, it's still working fine. So we still see a lot of people actually, it, depending on your goal, I think it, it still works well for a certain set of people, but then there's all the people who are transitioning to video and they're using, uh, you know, YouTube shorts and uh, they're doing full video podcasts like you guys mm-hmm. are experimenting with now. And I think that's an interesting trend, but I tend to think that there will always be audio first creators because not everybody wants to create a video. Video is just a lot yeah. more work, honestly. Uh, we started doing a video podcast for Headliner and it's just, you know, the the additional anxiety of like putting on the right shirt and what all that, it's just... A di- totally different game. I think a lot of people who entered podcasting are not going to like that transition and they'll probably focus back on, on audio first, although there'll still be this segment of video creators. But I think a really interesting uh, trend that I've seen is people using short form video to promote audio episodes. And so maybe for your full episode, you'll still keep it audio only. Maybe if you want to get it onto YouTube, which is now one of the biggest podcast discovery apps, you'll put a full length audiogram because really nobody's most people aren't watching the full episode. Like if I watch, mm-hmm. if I have a video podcast on, I usually watch like a few minutes and then the rest is all in a back background in a tab. Yeah. Flip over when something interesting comes on screen and then go back to doing whatever else I was doing. But I like the idea of using these short form, almost TikTok like videos where you can discuss an episode or you can give a preview, but you have a visual component. So that's a lot of 
what we've been considering for the next evolution of audiograms is how do we make a really engaging video where that audiogram format might work for the long form episode in that, you know, most people aren't watching, but when you have people's attention, they really are, they need more of something, something more stimulating, more engaging to get, to convince them to then listen in full. So you see people doing, you know, the selfie videos where they talk about the episode or creating these like really rich, using a bunch of different media or or animations maybe as a preview. I think that's really interesting. And it just shows that, you know, in context like TikTok or even Instagram, you really do need to grab people's attention and just doing kind of a static template probably won't get the job done for a lot of cases. I think if people are already following your podcast, it's a good way to alert them there's a new episode. But for somebody who, has, who isn't convinced yet, I think this, that more type of engaging short form video could go a long way. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of my favorite, um, not favorite, but like one that's top of mind rather for, for me is the comedian Bert Kreischer. He has his, his podcast and he does like little like 30 second snippets of his interviews in video form. And then that'll be like hooked to, for me to go like, oh, like, let's go like watch his podcast that he interviews like Taylor Tomlinson. It's like two comedians talking and shooting the shit, which is super interesting. And I, I love what you said about like the headliner journey, because as you were talking about the pain point of making videos, I was like, man, I really don't want to do that. And I was so happy when headliners started to automate all of the things that I was doing. It was yeah. just so many steps along the journey on like every Monday morning and, you know, this whole project for Jeff and I is a side project that we get a lot of joy and, and fun out of. And so for me, I just wanted to minimize that time because I was finding myself, you know, we posted on Monday mornings. It's like, I have to do it before work. And so I'm stressing out to get everything all, all going and all, all together. And it's it's nice to just kind of have headliner pick the, you know, 60 second clip. I have everything all set up for it to, to publish and then I can go go and post away. So I really, really appreciate <laughs> that, that product. So yeah, that was super fun to get a, a look behind the scenes at, at Headliner. Let's dive into our lightning round of questions. So we'll start off with some uh, some fun ones. Um, what is the worst product that you've ever used? And then what's the best product that you've ever used? Yeah, this, this will be interesting. I'm just going to, for the worst product, I'm going to come out with a really hot take. And I'm sure some people disagree with this, but I think the worst product I've used is honestly Apple Podcasts. And that that's a really big jab, I'm sure, to a lot of people. I actually think the product is pretty good in isolation. Like the UI is kind of nice. The UX is, is okay. Sometimes it really frustrates me, but overall I'm okay with it, I guess. But the reason I think it's the worst product is because I just don't believe products exist in isolation from the context of the greater landscape they're in. Mm -hmm. And given that Apple Podcasts is the default app on every iPhone, and given that it's the, it's still the biggest podcasting app, despite that it's got so many usability problems, it's it's far from terrible, but there's a lot of apps that do it much better, but they're just using their distribution to, to get that listenership. And I guess rightfully so, because they essentially created the format. But I think that they're just not keeping up with a lot of the innovation in the industry. And, and I wish they would, because I think given their position, they kind of have a responsibility of being a product from one of the most the richest company in the world, essentially. I don't know if they still are, but they were at one point. And you'd think that those resources could at least go into bringing the industry a bit for, further. And the fact that they're still not dethroned yet is just kind of adds to it. And I think it just shows they're resting on their laurels. And there's even a bunch of really nice innovations from Adam Curry, who is one of the founders of podcasting, along in, in conjunction with the, the folks at Apple, who's he's been doing a project called Podcasting 2.0 with all of these nice open web standard tags 
which is just really pushing the user experience further. And Apple doesn't support any of them. So I just think I'm, I'm just really disappointed in the product, despite that it does some things really well. I think that it's, you know, it really needs to do better as a product, given that it's still leading the industry. Totally. So it's interesting that you piece. mentioned that. No, I, I think it's a, it's spicy. I like it. I'm here for it. But I, it's so frustrating from on the podcaster create, podcasting creator side where I feel like the metrics and the plumbing is just like terrible. It's so hard to get really strong signals from like, you know, where the hotspots are. So you can, you know, like where to, where to double down and like the algorithms for like, how is it popping up into like, where is super like opaque. So I think I'm like, even on that back end side of it, it, it feels very much like a, a black box to us. So I, I, and also like what you say about like the UX, cause I, whenever I'm like, I'm, I'm an Android and like Microsoft <laughs> type of person, Jeff will tease me about my lack of going out to the, the Apple ecosystem. But whenever I go on to like, uh, like Apple podcasts uh, to upload the that upload the episodes, but to just, you know, scan through and grab the links. It's like, if I feel like I'm back in 2007, ripping CDs onto iTunes from, you know, and just like, it's like this super like gray button, like old, old school UI. But um, yeah, anyways, that, that got me going about like my, my feelings on Apple. So that was a, a yeah, big for me. Um, but how, how about uh, switching gears to the, to the best product you've ever used? Yeah, I think the best product, I mean, this is such a hard one. There's so many great products out there, but I think the part, the product I'm most excited about right now is still Figma. You know, as a, since I'm designing UI all day, just the change from Figma to Sketch felt ironically identical to the change from Photoshop and Illustrator to Sketch like about 10 years ago in that it just, like, like you were saying with what we're trying to do at Headliner is we understand the workflow and try to remove steps that are a pain point and just to simplify the usage of the product and, you know, get somebody from, from A to Z quicker or in a more enjoyable way. I think the, the ways that Figma has done that in terms of really understanding product designers workflows and automating some of the steps, like with the auto layout, even the way prototyping is built in the way it spits out code. So you don't have to go into Zeppelin. I think it just took out so many frustrating parts of the process that it, it feels really magical. And to me, that's a measure of a good product product is, when you feel like there's some magic behind it, like you push a button and you're like, oh my God, that was crazy. That's mm-hmm. how I felt with with Figma, uh, with their updates over the past two years or so. So I'm going to give it to them. Yeah, it's awesome. We lo- we absolutely love Figma as well. It's actually how we design some of our a- episode art. We do it on Figma, just kind of like replacing some things there. And yeah, I wish we could automate some of that too. But <laughs> yeah, um, so <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Let's say that you were suddenly the top 1% at any one skill or any one thing that... Um, in the world, what what might that be? I know you've kind of delved in a lot into the design space, but is there maybe something else that you'd be interested in all of a sudden becoming like the top 1%? Yeah, I think my, my answer is kind of vague, but I think it's it's true. I think if I was in the top percent of anything, it would be top percent of, of decision makers. You know, I think the power mm-hmm. of good decisions is in any industry you're in is so powerful. And uh, no matter how much talent you have in something, if you're not using it with the right decisions, you could be squandering it. So I think just I've, I've been trying really hard to get better at decision making over the past couple of years, just you know, knowing what to do, when to do it, what not to do, risk mitigation, and essentially knowing what problems to focus on. Because I, I really love this saying that I forgot to say it, maybe it was Don Horman or somebody like that, but they said that a beautiful solution to the wrong problem is worse than like a decent solution to the right problem or even a bad solution to the right problem. So I think decision-making is really a superpower that I've been trying to, to harness more. And hopefully one day I'll get into the top 1%, but still working on that. 
I love that. I just, whenever we ask this question, I think of like the Bernie Sanders meme, the top 1%. But um, one thing that I like, one book that I like for decision-making that I heard from the Tim Ferriss show that I loved was Thinking in Bets. I can't remember the author, but it's it's a really Andy good Dukes. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just listened to that. Oh, nice. Uh, audiobook, actually, yeah. Um, so what was I, it called? Thinking think, in Bets. Yeah, Thinking in Bets. Um, and the, the story is really cool. It's like... Uh, and Jeff, it's more, it's fresher for you. So I'll butcher it, but it's essentially a woman quits grad school, goes to her brother in Montana and her brother is like a professional poker player. And then she just becomes this like amazing poker player. But she was, I think, studying something like very science heavy in her, for her master's degree. And so she ended up going back to that career and kind of like, you know, funneling in just everything she learned about poker and like the odds of like making a decision and when you should do that. Cause if there's actually like a, a right decision and a wrong decision for, you know, what cards are on the table, if you are keeping track of things. So anyways, that one was super fascinating for me. And I, I like that. I think it's pretty quick too. It's like 200 or so pages, but um, I'd like it's about a four, a five hour listen on like a one point half, like one and a half <laughs> speed. So <laughs> that's my measure. I'm not a reader as much as I am a listener. So this is why I'm I love excited it. about the audio stuff. If I were to give it like a TLDR, basically the two main takeaways for me were one, like never claim that you were a hundred percent sure or unsure about anything. If you say I'm 60 or 70% sure or unsure, then it opens it up for people to freely disagree with you, which is always a good thing. And then the other thing is mainly around optimized for process, not outcomes. Like oftentimes people will, like in poker, for example, like you might play the right hand and you might have an 80% chance to win and then you could still lose and people will draw their feedback mechanisms off the outcomes, which is the wrong way to actually get better at poker. It's mostly about like, are you making the right decisions? Are you including the right criteria? Um, and then over a long string of time, then you'll be quote unquote, at least, at least in poker, like a winner. So kind of the same applies to life and business, like making the right decisions via process versus like making, like trying to over-optimize on just the outcome uh, was like, were two of the main takeaways that I was thinking about. I love, yeah, I love that. That's all really, really interesting. I'll definitely have to give that a read. And I think that's all spot on. I think that last, that last part about, you know, you, you could win this hand, but lose the next. I think that's a super important lesson. And I forgot what it's mm -hmm. called. I think it's called the Kelly criterion or something, but essentially it's, always making sure you can live to see the next day. So whatever bet you take, <laughs> yeah. don't, don't go all in, as you said, don't go hundred uh, percent. Just make sure the outcome of your bet will let you make another bet tomorrow and, and keep learning. So I love that advice. Yeah. And so if you had to share advice with everyone via a billboard and you could put up a billboard anywhere, what would it say? Oh yeah. I love this question. So I actually had to look up one of my favorite quotes to answer with this. And uh, it's, uh, Sorry, maybe not sorry, but it's a Steve Jobs quote. I know, pretty played out. But he said, he had this quote that, where he said, everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you and you can change it. And I just thought that was such a empowering, like insightful statement to encourage all of us to just, to just build stuff. You know, if we don't like something, let's try to build another one. Let's give feedback. And I just love how it empowers anybody. You don't have to be a designer to, to give me feedback on the design headliner. Happy to hear it. Or design a competitor and we'll try to outcompete it, you know, but I just loved how it empowered people to, to try to change the world via, via action. So that's going to be my, my billboard if I ever put one up. <laughs> I love it. Um, we'll, we'll leave with that one on, um, on all of our social, but where, where can people find you? Any pluggables or any call to action for our audience? Yeah, sure. Just feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Maximilian NYC, or you can get, you can reach me at my website, which is also maximilian.nyc. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll plug Headliner. I mean, if anybody hasn't heard of it, definitely 
check it out if you're a podcaster. If you have heard of it and you have feedback, feel free to shoot it over to me, max at headliner.app. I'm always trying to just be in the mix of, of hearing what people think about it and hopefully using that to improve if, if possible. You know, we, we try our best, but yeah, <laughs> that's, that's all we can do. So yeah, that's, that'll be my plugs. I love it. Uh, well, well, thanks so much, Max. And I think from the Product Explained perspective, um, I'm a huge headliner fan. So really cool to have you on the show. I thought that was an awesome conversation. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So we would love to hear from you, our audience. Let us know if there's any products or product experts that you'd like to see and hear on the show. Feel free to share with us what you think. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Products Podcast. That's P-R-O-D-E-X Podcast. Yeah, and if you like the show, be sure to like us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. We're on all of them, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, etc. Let us know who you'd love us to sit down and chat with next, and we'll see you next episode.